Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hello and welcome to Back from the Borderline, the podcast that helps anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD overcome their biggest obstacle, themselves. I am your host, Molly, and I believe that anyone, including you, can come back from the borderline. This week's episode is another relaxed one. I'm going to take some listener questions. The topics that we are going to cover are abusive friendships. And also another listener called in and asked about some books that I'd recommend. And I go in depth into some brand new books that I've been reading that I've loved. And then we will take a listener voicemail from one of my male listeners asking why so many more women are diagnosed with BPD than men. And we dive really deep into that. We'll then be finishing up with a sneak preview of this week's premium episode where I provide a reaction to a new YouTube video that's been released on the Soft White Underbelly YouTube channel, which is an interview with a woman who's been diagnosed with BPD, and I provide my reactions as I listen to that interview. So if this all sounds interesting, make sure you listen to the very end of the episode. So let's dive straight in. So what's up everyone? I hope you're having a good week. Hope you enjoyed the episode last week with Dr. Lisa Miller. That episode, I'm not gonna lie, I put a lot into it. From the production to the edit to the research I did on her to put all the questions together. I am a one-person show over here, so I do everything on my own and lots and lots and lots of work went into that episode. So I thought this week I would take a chill, relaxed, laid back approach because I'm recording this one a week ahead of time. And by the time you hear this, I will be on vacation with my family in Wyoming. And so I'm getting ahead on my recording schedule fun little fact that I wanted to share with you. I am like two days before my period, which means I'm turning into a raging monster. And if you've listened to my PMS episode, you know that so many of us who identify with BPD, man, when I'm around my period, get just get the fuck out of my way because I am a nightmare on wheels. It's insane. And this morning I drove to Chick-fil-A. Yes, don't judge me. And I got myself some of these things called Chick Minis. They're basically like these little mini biscuits with chicken inside of them. And then you put some honey on them. And oh my God, they're so good. And I ate two of them. And right before I was going to record this episode, 
I went downstairs and my plan was I was going to save two of them for a snack before I recorded. And I went downstairs, went to my refrigerator, opened the door to get my chick minis. I opened the box of my chick minis. And what do I see? I see the little biscuit, but the chicken nugget has been taken out of one of the biscuits. And guess who the fuck did that? Zaz. That's a Zaz move. And when I tell you, I know you'll understand the rage that you feel when you've been like thinking about a a food item that you're saving specifically, especially when you're in a PMS rage. You know, when you just like, I can't wait till I can go down and I get off these work calls and I'm going to go eat those two fucking chick minis that I've been saving. I have my eyes on them. My heart is set on them. I'm ready to eat them. Nope. Then I go down there and all I see is just a biscuit carcass with no fucking chick in my chick fucking mini. And guess who did it? Zaz. Who does that? That's fucked up. And I walked straight upstairs. Zaz is on his work call and I opened the door and I just point, pointed to my eye and then pointed at him. And I mouthed my chick fucking minis. And he grinned an evil grin. And you know what? I laughed it off. Typically, that actually would have probably sent me into a BPD symptom rage, (laughs) even something like that, because if you don't remember, I don't know what it is about me and biscuits, but if you listened to the Dr. Fox episode, I had the fabulous Dr. Fox, who is the BPD expert on YouTube on my podcast last year, and I actually yelled at Zaz for throwing away some biscuits that I had left over from George's chicken. (laughs) And I literally actually started a real fight with Zaz because he threw away these biscuits because he thought like they were stale. And so he just threw them away and I like flew into a rage. I was actually like, I chose violence because of biscuits. (laughs) So today really is full circle because it's pretty much like an exact year ago that the what I told Dr. Fox was that I deemed in our house Biscuit Gate. It's a year since Biscuit Gate. And now Zaz fucking ate one of my chick minis, which is also a biscuit related item. I don't know, man. Don't fuck with my biscuits. Just don't. Just don't. But if you do, I'm not going to let you steal my piece. That's the moral of this week's story. So I hope you like that little anecdote from my from my life. I am just, if seriously, PMS puts me in a rage. I don't know what it is. My back hurts. I just feel this feeling of discomfort. I like, I can't get still, like, I can't get comfortable when I'm sitting in my desk chair. I can't sleep properly at night because I get really hot and I run hot at the best of times. So you know how some people are always cold? Like my little sister, she always has, she's always cold. She always has cold feet. She's always just freezing. She'll wear like a parka in the summer. Me, on the other hand, I'm always hot. Zaz can like barely even cuddle me in bed because I'm like a human furnace. And so when I get close to my period, I get even like more unusually hot so I can't sleep. So then when I get shitty sleep, then I start getting grouchy and then I don't have the energy for my stupid fucking mental health walk or run. And then it all goes downhill. 
and then I'm craving sugar and bad food. And so then I know that all of these things just add up to me being a nightmare, but it is what it is. I haven't been able to break this cycle. I just, all of my coping skills just fall out the the window around my period. And all I want to do is eat everything bad for me and wine and everything anyone does is annoying to me. I've like, I just am like on a hair trigger of rage, (laughs) but thankfully I have my recovery skills. And now I know that I just need to like isolate myself. So it is what it is. And if you can relate to that, then I feel you because I think it's important that we talk about the BPD rage and also anyone out there, like don't, if you're a a person that's a partner of someone who's on their period, don't steal their biscuits. Like just don't, don't do it. (laughs) So without um, further ado, I have gotten some absolutely fantastic voicemails in the last couple of weeks. I appreciate everyone who is very patient with my website transfer. I transferred from Squarespace over to this special new web page provider called PodPage. And that meant that my site was down for a little bit. And now the whole site looks a little bit different. And before you would go to a tab in my website to leave a voicemail. And now all you have to do is go to backfromtheborderline.com. And on both the mobile and desktop website, you just have to click the little floating microphone icon and click that. And then you can leave me a voicemail and you can leave me a voicemail up to a minute and 30 seconds, I think. I set the time limit on that to a minute 30 because I thought that was a decent amount of time. And I know that if I had to leave a podcast or a voicemail, I'd probably end up rambling for five minutes and I feel you. But I also would like not be able to answer as many voicemails if I had to play five minute voicemails. So that's the backstory on that. So our first voicemail that I'll be playing today is from Joanna. Hi, Molly. My name is Joanna. I'm a premium subscriber. I'm 31 years old and I'm calling in from New York on what is actually the 11 year anniversary of my surviving a suicide attempt. So definitely a meaningful day and I'm trying to be very proud of myself for surviving. Thank you so much for your podcast. I truly can't say thank you enough. It has helped me tremendously. I'm actually writing a YA novel that centers around an LGBTQ identifying teenage character who struggles with some of the symptoms of BPD. And your podcast is really helping to inform some of the ways that I approach my novel. One thing that I've personally struggled with for many years is being in an emotionally abusive friendship with someone who has been like an FP in my life. Your bonus episode on limerence helped me to view things in a different way. I think what's been most difficult for me is my seeming addiction to intermittent reinforcement. It's as though I feel like I deserve to be emotionally abused, and it's been hard to break my trauma bond with my FP. So any advice you have for this would be so much appreciated. Thank you so much for your podcast, Molly. And to anyone else listening, become a premium subscriber. It is great, and I am thrilled to be one. Thanks, and have a great day. Joanna, thank you so much for that. 
you can't even pay for that kind of promo. Thank you for this shout out about my premium content. I work really, really hard on it and I'm trying my best to grow that part of my business because I'd love to be able to do this full time one day. So thank you for supporting that dream. Also, congratulations on being here with us still. 11 years since that suicide attempt and I'm sure you have so much that you've experienced in this past over a decade. You said you're 31 now, so that means your attempt was when you were around 20 years old. I was at some of my lowest times in my life between the ages of like 20 and 24. And that is when the symptoms of BPD that I experienced were at their height. And I wonder if you agree with this and I wonder if other listeners agree with this. So often they say that you sort of age out of BPD or that BPD naturally can get better with age. I think there's an aspect of truth to that. It's a bit more complicated. Obviously, if you don't do any kind of self-reflection or introspective work, inner work, your symptoms of mental health can completely decline as you get older. There's That is certainly a reality that I'm sure some people experience, but it's quite typical as we get older, we start to experience the same cycles of shit happen and we start going, oh, this is happening again. And it's kind of hard to not see the you're the problem moments as you've experienced me opening up to that about that in the podcast as well. Around, you know, 2930, I started zooming out and going, okay, I can continue saying that. Why do I always attract horrible men in my life? Why is my life a fucking chaotic mess? Why am I surrounded by drama constantly when I see people existing in relative peace and tranquility? Why me? Well, I am the common denominator in some of this stuff. And as we get older, it's harder to not notice that. And you realize too, I feel like when we're in our teens and 20s, it really does feel like we're going to be around forever and that we have all the time in the world to fuck up. And then when you're in your like late 20s, early 30s, you start going like, oh, okay, I, I really want to get to the bottom of this because I don't want to live my entire existence in this chaotic nightmare. So I'm really happy to hear that you are feeling better. Truly, I it means the world to me and I'm sure it means the world to your family and friends and people that love you. And now look what you're doing. You are writing a young adult novel. I love this and I'm so honored that the podcast is helping to inform that. Now to the part of your question where you talk about emotionally abusive friendships and friends becoming your FP. I can relate to this so incredibly deeply and I think it's so great that you bring it up and I'm also really happy that the bonus episode on limerence was helpful for you. For anyone who's not a premium subscriber, I did a deep dive on this concept called limerence and limerence is a mental state of profound 
romantic infatuation, deep obsession, and fantastical longing. That's the description and definition that you can find online. And I am convinced that what is known in the BPD circles and BPD community as the FP or favorite person relationship, it's exactly the same thing as limerence. It's becoming really obsessed with someone, making them the center of your world. And I'm convinced that you can have limerent feelings about people, places, and things. And I did a deep dive on that in that premium episode. So if you want to listen to that full episode, go ahead and become a premium subscriber. But back to your question, Joanna, this real struggle that you're describing when it comes to feeling like you're caught in cycles of emotionally abusive friendships. I struggled a lot with this in my teens and 20s, and I felt like I always became like the sidekick to a really mean girl. And I'm by no means demonizing anybody. Everyone has their own trauma and problems, but I'm just speaking from my own personal experience, so maybe you'll be able to relate. But I found myself getting into really close friendships with kind of like mean, manipulative girls where I felt like if I would do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing, that they would no longer be my friend. And I really felt like our friendship was very conditional. And and it was all very all-encompassing as well. And then when it would end, which those relationships inevitably do, it would like crash down in flames and drama. And it's really, really painful. So a relationship that I had similar to that was with a girl that I worked with a couple of years ago. We became really, really close. And she was so fun and so funny. There's so many good things about her. But what I noticed is that she started bullying people that we worked with and we became really close me and this girl so we were like talking all day long texting and we bonded over just talking shit at work and I found myself becoming someone I really wasn't around her getting a little bit meaner a little bit cattier than I am and I'm not proud of the person that I became when I was really close with her but she started becoming a bit of a bully at work and that's where I draw the line and I I can't go along with it and so when I noticed this behavior I decided to stand up and lightly call her on it and just tell her you know hey kind of back off that person they're doing the best they can I don't think that how you're treating them is very fair and in that instant I became her enemy really quick And I instantly saw that if I wasn't completely going with her, I was the enemy and she was going to do things to undermine me and make my life a living hell at work. It was really scary. And I found myself getting into relationships like that with men like that romantically and then also with um, women like this as well in my platonic relationships and friendships. So I wanted to give a little bit of background on that in case you can relate to it because I feel like it's not something that we talk about a lot. And I want to highlight too, it's the same kind of thing that we've talked about in previous episodes of needing to really rely 
on your intuition, on that gut feeling. Nine times out of 10, we get a strong negative gut feeling about these people, whether that be these friendships, Joanna, that you're finding yourself in or romantic relationships for anyone else listening, whatever that may be, you know, when someone is kind of like not a good idea for you to be in a relationship with, but then it just feels like you're too tied into them and it feels scary to cut things off. And I think it's interesting that you talk about this addiction to intermittent reinforcement as you describe it. And I wasn't quite sure what this was, so I looked it up. So what we're finding here, I'm going to read this for the listeners. It says the role of intermittent reinforcement and trauma bonding. Intermittent reinforcement in the context of psychological abuse is a pattern of cruel, callous treatment mixed in with random bursts of affection. The abuser hands out rewards such as affection, a compliment, or gifts sporadically and unpredictably throughout the abuse cycle. Think of the violent husband who gives his wife flowers after assaulting her, or the kind words an abusive mother gives to her child after a particularly harsh, silent treatment. Intermittent reinforcement causes the victim to perpetually seek the abuser's approval while settling for crumbs of their occasional positive behavior in the hopes that the abuser will return to the honeymoon phase of the relationship. Like a gambler at a slot machine, victims are unwittingly hooked to play the game for a potential win despite the massive losses. This manipulative tactic also causes us to perceive their rare positive behaviors in an amplified manner. This is known in psychology as the small kindness perception. In threatening and survival situations, we look for evidence of hope, a small sign that the situation may improve. When an abuser or controller shows the victim some small kindness, even though it is to the abuser's benefit as well, the victim interprets that small kindness as a positive trait of the relationships with abusers, a birthday card, a gift, usually provided after a period of abuse, or a special treat, are interpreted as not only positive, but evidence that the abuser is not all bad and may at some time correct his or her behavior. Abusers and controllers are often given positive credit for not abusing their partner. When the, abu- when the partner would have normally been subjected to verbal or physical abuse, in a certain situation. So I have some things to say about this because sometimes descriptions like this I feel are not helpful. So this article is all about like narcissistic abuse and when I tell you I think that narcissistic abuse stuff is so overdone and also if we have BPD And I'm not saying that Joanna is saying this intermittent reinforcement is a thing in trauma outside of narcissistic abuse, but this particular article is all about narcissistic abuse. And if we're wanting to destigmatize BPD, we also need to destigmatize NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder. No one person is all good or all bad. That includes anyone who's been labeled with narcissistic personality disorder, right? We can't just want to destigmatize one and not destigmatize them all. And so, what I take issue with in this particular description, and I think it's something to be really wary of 
when you're out there online because I remember being in this position where when I was in an abusive relationship or even a friendship, I was out there looking for like armchair diagnosing this person and being trying to prove myself like that they're the bad person. And the part of this article says, you know, these gestures of kindness from the quote unquote abuser are interpreted as by the person who's being abused that the abuser is not all bad and what I say is yeah of course even an abusive person is not all bad think about it think about the people that you have had the most traumatic relationships there are still really good memories with that person they're not this fucking heartless demon you know they have their own traumas and their own issues but what we have to do is decide we need to take control and if they are preventing us this relationship with this person is preventing us from finding our own sense of healing then we need to remove ourselves from those situations right nobody's all good or all bad but are there some people that are really really damaging for our healing process absolutely What I really, really relate to in this description of intermittent reinforcement is this concept of breadcrumbing. I don't know if you've ever heard of this as well, where you'll get like a really nice memory with the person. They'll be super affectionate and super nice. And then that like, you're like surviving. You're like a thirsty person in the desert and then this person who's treating you like shit gives you one drop of love one crumb of love and boom everything's great again until the next time right and it's just not worth it and ironically if you keep doing this dance you are actually not offering that person the highest form of love because the two of you are doing this really toxic maladaptive dance that's keeping you both stuck and sick and so I feel like the over emphasis on this narcissistic abuse recovery stuff just as stigmatizing and unhelpful as borderline abuse stuff it's not helpful People are hurting and people are suffering and we need to get ourselves out of relationships with these people and I hope that all the people that were abusive to me, I hope they find help and healing, but I've had to put distance between myself and them. I'll be honest with all of you, I'll share something that happened to me this last week. I was on my Gmail, just checking my email this week. And if you use Gmail, you'll know that there's a thing called Gchat and I don't haven't used it in years. I used to use it with random people like my sister or whatever. And I was on Gchat and I got a message from an ex that beat the shit out of me. While our relationship ended in domestic abuse, I haven't spoken to this person in, uh, like six, six years. And the last time I saw him was like me kicking him out of our apartment. And so when I tell you my stomach like dropped out of my ass when I saw that chat pop up and he said something like, oh, hey, how's it going? 
I hope you're doing well. I hope your music is doing well. You deserve success. No hard feelings, right? Are you fucking kidding me? And of course, immediately I blocked and deleted him, but it literally sent me into like a fight or flight response. And I thought to myself, after looking back, I was just like, wow, I really hope he's finding hope and healing because I had some good memories with him. He has a tender heart in certain aspects. He's not all bad, but I remember literally looking up on Google whether he was a narcissist. And I would tell anyone who would listen that he was a textbook narcissist years and years ago. But I'm just going, that's not helpful. I don't find that to be helpful. I just hope he finds help and healing. And I don't want him anywhere near my life. And I ho- it's my hope that we can all start speaking about other people like that too. So this answer went off on a little bit of a tangent, but I just wanted to thank you, Joanna, for sending in this voicemail because I think it's a really important topic. So if you are interested in the concept of limerence and wrapping up your identity in other people, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode where I discuss that and also sign up for premium where you can listen to the full episode on limerence that joanna mentioned so thank you joanna thank you for becoming a premium subscriber thank you for letting me rant on your question where it turned into like npd stigma and shit even though that's not really where we started but my parting words for you are be really picky about the people you have in your life we have a brief moment on this planet And especially as we get into our 30s, I can tell you I give less and less fucks every single day I'm on this earth. And you just don't have time for these relationships that drain you. You have a book to write. You have got life to live. There are so many amazing human beings out there that want to be a good friend with you. So if you start feeling like you are attracting someone in your life that's got a lot of unhealed shit that they need to deal with, then you need to put some serious boundaries up and do what I call the like slow fade ghost mode just fade out you don't have to even give anybody any reasons just say you're busy you can't meet up and keep doing that until they give it up it will happen people will give up there's no point in telling someone oh you're hurting me and this isn't working for me because if somebody has a bunch of unhealed shit Think about how you would have reacted to that at your worst, right? You probably would have freaked out. Say I would have. Sometimes doing the slow fade, not the pure ghost, not like delete, block, whatever. That's not very kind. But when they want to hang out, don't be available. When they want to call you or they want to reach out, say you've got something else going on and continue doing that until the slow fade is complete. It is not up to you to tell them what they're doing to trigger you and look within yourself and ask, are the things that this person's doing to me kind of a repetition of what happened to me in childhood? And make sure you've got your eyes out for that in the future. And maybe start writing down some things. What are some qualities you really want in friends? What are some things you really have felt like triggered you and have turned into these more negative relationships write them down and spend some serious time reflecting on it and the moment that you start thinking of developing a new friendship with someone really 
question like, is this someone that I want to spend parts of my one and precious life with? Is it really worth it? We have to be a lot more discerning and take a really active role in who's in our life. For me, people just kind of fell into my life and I accepted whoever really wanted to be friends with me because I genuinely felt like I had to take what I could get because I wasn't really that lovable. And that's where you've got to start because if you are ending up being in friendships with people that you feel like are treating you like shit, it's because you probably treat yourself like shit and that's what you think you deserve. And so you got to do some serious work on that first. So... I hope that this was helpful. We're going to play our next voicemail, which is from Renee. Hi, Molly. My name is Renee. I'm 26 and calling from Australia. I love your podcast. It's seriously amazing. It has helped me in more ways than I could ever describe. I made the choice to become a premium member and, oh my God, I wish I did it sooner. I just wish that I could hit pause right now so I could listen to every episode and then like re-listen to all my favorite episodes. I'm making my way through them slowly, just not quick enough for my liking. Thank you for all the time you put into the show. I loved big BPD emotions and fear of abandonment. The premium episodes, like the part two on those were like life-changing and anyone that I talk to like now, whether it's my mom, friends or partner like I tell them how much I like it like they could probably start quoting the episodes that's how much it is just ah you've inspired me to keep going and you've gotten me through days that I didn't believe that I could get through and like I'm pursuing a new career which I just I didn't think I was ever going to be able to do um your book recommendations like can can you do like a part two because I swear I feel like any book you recommend I would I would be like here is my money yeah just thank you so much and I love you and ah keep going I can't wait to see what else you make (laughs) thank you oh Renee I love this voicemail so much and thank you for becoming a premium subscriber I'm really glad that y'all have liked the new tactic I've been doing which is diving into a topic and then digging deeper as a part two for my premium episodes. So for the BPD emotions and fear of abandonment episodes, I did two part two episodes for those. So thank you for the shout out on that. And also thank you for validating how much work I put into this. I really do. And I do it for each and every one of you. And this is like therapy for me as well. So it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. Congratulations on pursuing your new career. I know you mentioned you didn't think you'd ever be able to do it. So many of us who identify with BPD, we have these deep limiting beliefs and that's a huge thing to work on. And I think that's what I really dive into on my podcast. And I'm so glad to hear that working through the episodes and whatever work you've been doing on your own and reading has been helping you. Also, the fact that you love my book recommendations, you touched a very special place in my heart because you know how much I love my books. Books are everything to me. And I added a new top of the episode promo that y'all will probably have heard. And it is, if you go to my website, you can download my top 30 BPD recovery books. And admittedly, I haven't updated that list in a while. I'm probably going to make another one. And 
re like switch out the PDF download so that it's new books because some I've had a ton more books that I think maybe are even better. I still stand by all of those. But right now I'm going to read out some of the amazing stuff I've been reading and listening to on Audible. I will sometimes and this is not an advertisement for Audible. I just fucking love Audible because I love listening to books. I mean, it makes sense because I'm a podcast fanatic. So I will usually be listening to like two Audible books at once and then reading two books on my Kindle and then maybe reading another like paperback book. I'm always reading probably four or five books at once. And how I think about this to myself is I'm like, it's like I'm putting myself through college, except my own college course. And if I were taking college classes, I would have four or five textbooks that I would be reading. So I'm like, why can't I be listening to and digesting more books than one at a time? Doesn't make sense, right? So here are some of my favorites recently. If I can remember to do so, I'll also put them in the show notes so that you can write them down and click into them and get them. So the first one is What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. Really, really good book on trauma. The next book is The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. This book has actually been banned in prisons because it basically talks about how all of the most like evil and manipulative people in history have gotten their power. But what I love about this book is because I'm a huge history nerd. I find it fascinating. I also think it's really good to understand the ways that people can manipulate their power in every day. And I think it's a really powerful tool for awareness. And then there are also some really good positive things that you can take. Um, It's a really empowering book, I felt. So highly recommend 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And if you really want to see some beautifully inspiring interviews, Robert Greene has done hours and hours of interviews on YouTube, and he is a fascinating person. The next book I recommend is Set Boundaries, Find Peace by Nidra Glover Tawab. I'm probably butchering her name. She's a therapist. Amazing book on boundaries. Highly recommend. Another book that is great is called Breath by James Nestor. This book is all about the science of breath and how important breath work is in our mental health and health in general. Amazing, amazing book. Another one is called Bringing Home the Dharma by Jack Cornfield. Great one. Atlas of the Heart by the fantastic and fabulous Brene Brown. Another one is A Life of Meaning by Dr. James Hollis. This one is really good if you love like the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell stuff. I'm currently also reading Finding Your Own North Star by Martha Beck. Very, I'm saying very good to all of these. Obviously, I think they're very fucking good. Healing Collective Trauma by Thomas Hubel. Those are a few to get you started. So I will link to those in the show notes if you want to download those amazing books that I've read in the last four or five months or so. Yes, I go through a lot, a lot of books. It's my main pastime. So our next voicemail is from Ben. Hey, Molly, this is Ben. I just want to say I'm a huge fan of your uh, page and the content that you're putting out. I'm 34 now. And 
I grew up in the rural South in America. One thing that I've noticed um, with a lot of the BPT content that I come across uh, on YouTube and Instagram and such is geared towards women or teenagers. Um, and I know the statistics are rare for a guy to be diagnosed, and uh, I happen to draw the lucky, the lucky straw on that one. But I was curious if you had any sort of perspective on that, um, on the difference between experiencing BPD as a man versus as a woman in our culture. Well, thank you for reaching out with your question, Ben. And I had to edit hit the audio of this voicemail a little bit. There were some audio issues, so I had to edit some of the more difficult to hear parts. One part that I did have to edit out because it was not distinguishable was that Ben mentioned that he grew up in the rural South and didn't really have much access to mental health resources. I like that you asked in your question what my perspective on this is. So I want to reiterate that this is just my perspective and my view. So the latest stats say that BPD is diagnosed predominantly in about 75% in females, a three to one female to male gender ratio is pretty profound for a mental disorder. So of course, this has led to a lot of speculation about why there are so many more women diagnosed with this quote-unquote disorder. I found this abstract of a research paper that I think really encapsulates a lot of what I've come across in my own research. It says that the essential question is whether the higher rate of BPD observed in women is a result of a sampling or diagnostic bias, or is it a reflection of biological or sociocultural differences between women and men? Data to address these issues is reviewed in this paper. The differential gender prevalence in BPD in clinical settings appears to be largely a function of sampling bias. So, what is sampling bias? Sampling bias occurs when some members of a population are systematically more likely to be selected in a sample than other people. And sampling biases can affect any kind of survey, but they're really particularly problematic, obviously, for social and mental health type of surveys, which we're talking about here. Everything that I've come across states that biased sampling is most likely the explanation for the gender bias in the diagnosis of BPD. There's also a issue here and a lot of debate in the mental health community about whether the larger prevalence of BPD in women is due to the biased sampling or simply just a biased diagnosis in general. I've talked about this at length in my podcast before, and if you listen to me in any meaningful way, you know that I really believe that disorder labels and personality disorder labels especially 
are just a crock of bullshit. And BPD as a diagnosis is so problematic in that there's no scientific evidence behind it. It was voted on by a group of men almost a hundred years ago to describe symptoms in mostly, quote, hysterical female patients that they couldn't really understand. And so, Ben, to answer your question, I don't really believe that BPD is a thing. I believe that the symptoms that we are all experiencing are absolutely a thing. But what I also believe is that more women are slapped with this personality disorder diagnosis, which is essentially just new age hysteria. And when a heterosexual straight male is more likely to be slapped with something like antisocial personality disorder or some other label that's been created by the wild ass DSM committee. Something else that I've heard that's really, really interesting is that, you know, for example, certain symptoms or things that a woman may present with in a psychiatric setting would be demonized or labeled as pathological, whereas potentially a heterosexual male, it may not be immediately labeled as pathological. So for example, I talk a lot about sex as self-harm on this podcast, where, which is also known as promiscuity or hypersexuality. I hate also the phrase that the psychiatric community uses. It's just called sexual acting out. And I prefer my term, which is sex as self-harm, because that's how I experienced it. And I feel like many of you have resonated with that description. And if you really think about it, a guy who presents saying he, like that he's slept with a lot of women, for example, like a heterosexual presenting man saying that he has fucked a lot of bitches, then... Uh, maybe a male psychiatrist that's meeting with him is just like, well, that's socially acceptable. But if a woman comes in speaking about having multiple sexual partners, that's automatically seen in a different way. And I'm not saying everyone feels that way. I'm, I promise I'm not trying to label anyone. I'm, I'm talking about stereotypes about the genders here, things that shouldn't exist in my opinion. But you asked for my perspective and I think this is why a lot of women are like very quickly handed this diagnosis. I've also heard of people that are bisexual often getting slapped with a BPD diagnosis, particularly women, but also men. So with psychiatrists or people in the mental health field, framing this in a way that someone is confused about their identity, which as you know, identity disturbance is seen as one of the characteristics of BPD. So instead of someone just really genuinely being bisexual, which is a valid way to express your sexuality and feel, a lot of times people who are bisexual and then maybe have other mental health symptoms that they're describing when they present in front of a psychiatrist or psychologist, they are getting slapped with a BPD label because of this as well. And this also happens a lot for women. I found an interesting article online that brought up another good point about the gender bias and diagnosis. It says women may also be socialized to express anger inwardly, which then often ends up in them participating in self-harm, while men are encouraged to 
outwardly direct their frustrations. And I think that's another thing too. So for example, if someone presents in a psychiatrist's office and they're cutting themselves or they are, you know, displaying classic signs of self-harm, that's like a one-way ticket, I feel like, to a BPD diagnosis. And this way of dealing with anger, I feel like, is also a determining factor in why there are so many more women that are diagnosed with the disorder than men because someone who outwardly displays their rage and they're a man is unlikely to get a BPD label. They're going to get one of the other disorder labels typically. The article goes on to say, however, there's compelling evidence that diagnostic gender bias may be a contributing factor in the striking disparity between male and female BPD diagnosis. A study published in Comprehensive Psychiatry provided clinical profiles that fit the criteria for a wide variety of personality disorders to 46 clinicians and asked them to classify the presentation of the client. Although the client profiles were identical, those clinicians who were told the client was a woman were significantly more likely to provide a diagnosis of BPD. A similar study published several years later in the Professional Psychology Research and Practice surveyed 1,800 clinicians and reached similar conclusions. Some research has also found that the gender of the clinician affects the bias and that female clinicians were more likely to identify women's behavior as indicative of BPD. That's very interesting. So women themselves, women clinicians are contributing to this. So I hope this has been helpful for you. I provided my own perspective. I mean, what the bottom line here is, is that I just think the diagnosis for BPD is bullshit anyways. And I think that it was built on stigma and confusion. And so it's like, what do we do when we just build, we're asking questions. Why are more people, why are more women diagnosed with this bullshit disorder? There's no point in even getting to the bottom of it because I want it all gone. I don't want anyone diagnosed with a personality disorder. I wish you weren't either, Ben. Um, But it's my hope that at least, obviously, the label has helped you find resources. And that's the one thing I am grateful for. Without this label, I wouldn't be able to connect with each and every one of you. But I'm hoping that all of us together, we can work towards a future where no one is searching online and finding horrible things about people with BPD, that they're broken and incurable and unfixable. And I'm doing my work every day to help battle that. But what we're seeing here in the research and my own opinion is that this is a highly biased disorder where the majority of people that are going to be labeled with it are women for a variety of reasons. And I hope that this answer has provided some clarity around that for you. I'm sending you all the love in the world. Everyone is different. And regardless of what gender you identify with, what I really find a lot more helpful is Dr. Anita Federici, our episode where she discussed the different bio temperaments that we have. All of us are either one of two bio temperaments where you are emotionally over-controlled which means you're more on like the OCD kind of spectrum. You put everything inward. These are the kind of people that identify with things written about what's called as quiet BPD, which isn't a thing, you know, but we've discussed that on previous episodes. 
And then there is emotionally under-controlled, which is what I identify with, which is classic BPD, where you really struggle with impulsivity, you're very reactive and explosive. And we have this spectrum of biotemperament where no one is completely over-controlled or under-controlled. We all have, we're on a spectrum of those things. And I really wish, as in my interview with Dr. Lisa Miller, that we could get to a point where we are thinking about people on a spectrum of emotional control and treating people for the symptoms that they experience rather than sticking them in this clunky diagnostic box that is just not helpful. They're proven to be based on not a lot of scientific evidence, if any at all, and they're highly stigmatized. The diagnostic process is biased as fuck anyways, as we can see by all of this research. So it's time that we take a more trauma-informed approach, a more individualistic approach, and move forward from this stuff that is what i think those are my thoughts so i hope that was helpful for you i want to thank all three of those listeners for submitting those fabulous voicemails keep submitting your thoughts and your voicemails i love it i'm going to keep playing them on the podcast now i'm going to play the first part of my reaction to this youtube video of an interview with a girl who's been diagnosed with bpd done by the fabulous youtube channel soft white underbelly i'm going to link to the full youtube video that you can watch if you want to but i'm going to be providing a full reaction to this interview so i'm going to play the first few minutes and you'll hear some of my reactions and then it's going to fade out because if you want to unlock the full episode, you're going to need to subscribe to premium access. And as I said last week, support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via my ACAST Plus premium access membership. And you can access that via my website at backfromtheborderline.com. And this podcast is becoming my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, if it gives you solace, if it brings you joy, entertainment, then please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. It is the cost of a couple cups of coffee a month. But if you can't afford that, then you don't have to worry about it because you can continue listening for free. And the people who can afford it are paying for you to listen for free. So it's a win-win, right? Everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living, and this model is based on kindness. And I would urge you to become a premium access subscriber if you can afford that price of a couple cups of coffee a month, because it's what keeps this podcast completely independent. I'm not beholden to any advertisers. And if I do bring on sponsors or advertisers, I'm going to vet the shit out of them because I decline these opportunities every single day when I think that they're sus. I will only work with companies that I really believe in and that will let me continue doing what I want to do because advertisers make podcasts shit and all media shit because they step into a creative space and say, we're sponsoring this and now you need to change how you make the thing you make in order to accommodate our advertisements. So if this podcast was sponsored by a big brand, they might tell me, I don't want you talking about suicidal ideation or BPD this week. It's not going to get enough likes. Instead, do this. And I don't want to do that because 
I want to make the things I want to make. And each week on my podcast, I want to bring you things I'm genuinely passionate about, controversial things, things that I think you need to hear. And when the podcast is actually funded by you, my listeners, I have the freedom to do that. And don't just support my podcast, support whatever independent podcast you enjoy and that you listen to. And it doesn't just have to be monetary support. If you're not a premium subscriber of mine, you can help me by liking the podcast, following it on the podcast app you're listening to, share it on your social media, speak about it to the people you love, recommend it to your friends and therapists, leave a review. These are all ways that you can help independent podcasters like me in an environment where independent podcasters are being crushed by big corporate goals. So that's my little spiel. Thank you for allowing me to do that. I really want to speak to this because I'm very passionate about it. So please support me and other independent podcasters in any way you can. There's so many ways you can do that. So without further ado, let's just drop into this week's premium episode where I will be analyzing this YouTube video of an interview with someone with lived experience by Soft White Underbelly. So I hope you enjoy it. If you are already a premium subscriber, just stop the episode right now, go to your premium feed and start the episode. Don't listen to this sneak peek because otherwise you're going to be just listening to the same stuff over and over again. But for those of you who are not yet premium subscribers, enjoy this sneak peek. This YouTube channel is incredible if you don't already know about it like what are you doing go to youtube look up soft white underbelly and subscribe to it immediately you will be i mean or don't because you'll be in a rabbit hole but it's such beautifully beautifully produced content you know me i like to introduce you to things and tell you the reason why i am sharing things with you so what better way to read you a little bit of an article about this YouTube channel and the man who created it. Boasting almost 4 million subscribers, Soft White Underbelly is a docu-series on YouTube by the photographer Mart Leda. He interviews individuals within our society that America has turned their backs on, ridiculed, and seen as untouchable. In the introductory video on the channel, Leta noted that the name Soft White Underbelly came from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. He was advising the U.S. on the best way to attack Germany in World War II. He, Churchill, called Italy the soft underbelly of Europe, meaning that was the most vulnerable spot that Germany had come in Italy, Leta said in the video. Many of the interviews are of sex workers, drug addicts, runaways, gang members, swingers, the homeless, and many more that the country sees as an entity on their own. Soft White Underbelly is captivating because of the way it humanizes those who have society's stamp of condemnation on them. It demonstrates that no matter how far apart we are, we're really not that different. Leda's interviewees tell stories that everyday people would find difficult to understand. The emotions elicited by these conversations alone make it a binge-worthy channel. On the other hand, the viewer has a limitless supply of content thanks to new uploads every single day. Because there are so numerous episodes to choose from, you get to see many walks of life, their beginnings, and their stories they want to share. These videos are meant to create awareness of things that are broken in our country. If we don't look at some of the things, they're going to continue to grow and get worse and worse. And I believe listening, understanding, etc 
accepting and maybe deciding to do something differently might make a difference eventually, Leda said. Hopefully, others can take the time to see the human and everyone around them. So I hope that gives you a good intro to what this channel is all about. I, like I said before, I can't stress enough that you go and watch the videos on this channel and support Mark's work because obviously like I'm like stripping the audio from this and playing it and providing my reaction and I think that's okay right I'm directing all my listeners to his channel and I really wanted to play this interview of this girl that he shared um this popped up and then one of my supporters on Patreon messaged me and was like Molly did you see this and I was like yes I saw it and I'm going to do a reaction episode on it for my premium subs so here it is. We're just going to dive right in to this interview. Obviously, you can't see the girl because you're listening to this in audio form, but it's just as good because in these interviews, they're just sitting on a chair talking directly to camera. You can't see Mark or anything. But in this channel, the shots are quite beautiful. And I will link to the interview in the episode description on the off chance that you kind of like after you watch this or listen to this in my reactions, you're like, I really want to like put a face to the voice because I know how that feels where you're like, I just want to see what she looks like. I want to be able to like see her mannerisms and whatnot. So I'm going to play the interview now and I will stop intermittently when I feel like I have something to add or react to. Um, but I won't stop it unless I have something relevant to add. But I'm really excited to listen to this and like interact with you as we go through. So here we go. All right. Shauna. Hello. Shauna, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? I am from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I grew up on the east side of Detroit, really more so towards like middle school, late elementary. I moved to a mile and mound in the Warren area. That's really where I made like most of my friends and whatnot. But um been in Michigan ever my whole life, honestly. <laughs> and tell me about uh, your family. You had mom and dad? Yeah, I um, live with both. Um, I had both in my life the whole time. Um, yeah, both parents in my life. Um, it was it was good at first. Like, I had a really good sense of family, you know, being biracial. You know, I feel like I got a really good um, sense of diversity in my life. I feel like that played a big part of my, um, like, played a big role in my life. Um, it was good. You know, we, we grew up pretty decently wealthy. Like my grandma went to work. My mom went to work. Like my dad, you know, we all we were living comfortably. Um, it really wasn't until I'd say like middle school. It was it kind of just went downhill. Um, unfortunately, drugs got a hold of um, my family, like, you know, pills, um, opiates more so. And uh yeah, we've kind of shifted apart and haven't really been the same since. Uh, you know, my parents are still together, but it's definitely not the same. It's, we're small. I feel a little, it feels a little broken sometimes for sure. But, um, but no, like serious abuse in your childhood? Or- no, not serious, like abuse. I never got like, you know, beat on or nothing like that. You know, I got disciplined when my parents felt accordingly, but it wasn't nothing crazy or nothing. I'm going to pause here because she says some really profound things. And she mentions that, you know, in her adolescence, things started going downhill. And she doesn't really differentiate whether that's just going downhill with her family or also with her symptoms. She hasn't dived into her diagnosis yet. But as you can see, you know, adolescence is a really important time. 
our brains are still developing. We still need our parents' support. And she said that her parents struggled with addiction. And if our parents are neck deep in their own addictions, they're not going to be able to be there emotionally and spiritually or physically for their children. And in adolescence, you're going through a lot of shit and you need your parents to be there in mind and body for you. And it sounds like her parents weren't able to do that. And so when we're left on our own, that's a really scary time to be all on your own in really important and scary years of your life. And she also mentions, you know, oh, I didn't have that bad of a childhood. My parents didn't really beat me up. And I think you hear that a lot in people that end up getting a BPD diagnosis is, oh, my childhood wasn't that bad. But in reality, when you hear her describe her childhood with parents who were struggling with addiction and her not being able to have parents that were supporting her, that's really traumatic. And so many of us just really shrug off our trauma, shrug off our experiences. And you can hear this in her throughout the entire interview. And I want you to listen out for that is how she just sort of really says, oh, it's not that big of a deal, right? But it is a big deal. And it clearly made a really big impact on her. So let's continue with the interview from here. How far did you go in school? Um, I graduated school. I finished. I didn't go to college, but uh, that just wasn't really working for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What kind of work have you done? Um, for So when I was in like, you know, uh, not elementary, high school, um, I was doing like fast food, retail. Um, as I got older and as my social anxiety kind of gotten a little worse by time, I stopped wanting to do sales. And um, one day I found myself in 2019 being a dancer and that was kind of my job for like good two years until um COVID hit at a strip club yeah yeah strip club after hours suites um we didn't really dabble into the extras but you know don't shame on it either I have you know I know people who do that and they get their money. They live their best life. But um, I was more so into the dancing. Like, I just danced. It was it was cool. You know, I was with friends. Um, I had some... It was actually pretty decent. I definitely don't knock the dancing game. I actually enjoyed it. It was pretty cool. It just had some of its, uh, you know, its cons. It's not the best environment to always be around. It can mess with your self-esteem. Um, they don't tell you that some nights you don't make any money at all if you know, it's one of those nights. So that also used to bum me out, mess with my self-esteem. And yeah, it, it had its moments, but all in all, it got the job done, paid the bills. So what we've heard here is about her entry into the professional space. And there are so many parts I relate to what she shared. I remember when I first entered just the field of work, I was overwhelmed with work. I fucking hated working. I worked retail. I also worked fast food. And I remember having this deep feeling of like, is this really fucking it? Is this what my life is going to be? I hated it. And I feel the whole social anxiety thing too. I feel like a lot of these types of jobs really make us like they make us feel like we're living out of our integrity. I remember having to deal with awful customers and clients that were so rude to me and I just had to take it and it felt like so traumatizing and I remember waking up and feeling like I, I cannot go to this job today 
and I am just so full of em- like empathy and f- deep, deep, just want to hug anyone who's feeling like that because I know how horrible that is. And she found herself in the sex work industry. And I'm not saying sex work, not actually, she referred to it as I didn't get into any of the extras, which made me laugh. Like in other words, she didn't offer sexual favors for money in when she was working as a dancer, but working in a strip club, doing things like that, I kind of loop it all into sex work because say for instance, someone's a dominatrix and they don't have sex with their clients. That's still sex work, right? We're selling our bodies really whether or not someone is penetrating us we're still doing sex work and as many of you know I was a sex worker myself I and it came from this and I think so many of us get into sex work because of this because we're so overwhelmed with like the bullshit of work why do I why would I want to be at a retail job for a nine hour shift when I could make the exact same amount of money in three hours doing sex work, right? (laughs) Still, someone's still probably treating you like shit, but at least for it's a lot less time and it's a lot less effort half the time in terms of, I mean, we could go into what effort is, but I just want to say like, I get it. Like I worked in poker rooms in LA. I worked these karaoke rooms where you were just kind of like the eye candy Um, and the environment. She goes, it's not the best environment. It can mess with your self-esteem, right? But she said, it's no big deal. It was cool. And I want you to keep listening to how she just goes like, it's no big deal. It's no big deal, right? And it is a big deal. And these environments mess with you. And when I say these like strip club environments are toxic as hell. These sex working environments can be toxic as hell. I'm not saying that there are not in, in this existence on this planet, some really individuated, psychologically sound, fully healed sex workers out there that are out there doing really amazing work, but they represent a really small fraction of people in this industry. And the most part, it's a lot of young girls like this girl who's falling into this industry because they don't, they feel so out of alignment with some of these bullshit jobs that they have to do. And then once you fall into sex work, it's really hard to get out again because like you can make a lot of money for a little bit of, of time. And it makes not a lot of sense to have to go back and like fucking flip burgers for eight dollars an hour when you can do put a lot less time in for a lot more return i mean think about it it makes business sense but when she says that it kind of messes with your self-esteem it eviscerates your self-esteem and not only that too for me it you see a really dark side of humanity you see the kind of men mostly that frequent strip clubs and places like this they're also struggling. Yeah, of course, there's going to be the occasional person that's like being dragged there for a bachelor party. And maybe they're just like, you know, it's all for fun and games. But then there's some really, really broken and traumatized people that end up in strip clubs and they take and the women that are primarily women that are there are objectified and treated like absolute trash. So It's one of the worst environments you could be in if you have traits of BPD and you're highly sensitive. And you can see that this poor girl has just like 
kind of had to use this mantra, like, it's no big deal. You'll hear her do this over and over again. No big deal. No big deal. And these really traumatic things, having parents with like serious drug addictions, getting, you know, fallen into sex work at a young age and like really struggling in the career that she wanted because of her social anxiety, but it's all no big deal. No big deal. So let's continue listening. And drugs were a part of your life? Yeah. Um, again, somewhat are, I've definitely slowed down a lot, but back, yeah, really when I was dancing, when I got more into it, you know, year around all of that stuff. How old are you um, now? I'm 22. So I started when I was 19. Yeah. 2019 I started. Um, yeah, I, I was around all of that. You know, I wasn't crazy with it. You know, I wouldn't say I was addicted to it or nothing like that. You know, I see my family go through addictions and I know that's not what I wanted to be. So I definitely um, would have my limits with it. But I, you know, I did a lot. I was, you know, doing coke a lot. I was doing a lot of um, e-pills. Like I try Molly sometimes. Uh, Definitely slow down a lot. Like I don't really, it's just not something I want to cope with all the time. I want to learn how to cope with my mental health in different ways. But um, yeah, that was definitely a big part of my life. I slowed down a lot and uh, it's more so like a party once in a while, social thing for me. So she talks about how she got into drugs when she was dancing, which makes a lot of sense because friends that I know that have worked in the just nightlife industry, I have a lot of friends that are like bottle service girls or were. And It's like bottle service sometimes turns into strip club. Then you start waiting tables at the strip club. You're a bottle service girl at the strip club. Then you're dancing. Then you're a sugar baby. Then, then, then. It's like it really is like a really quick kind of like, you know how they say there are gateway drugs, like where you start with like weed and then you're more likely to try heroin and coke than da, 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 da. Or I guess it might go weed, coke, then heroin. I was like, damn, heroin's a hard pivot from weed. But you get what I'm saying? Just like there's gateway drugs, there's gateway jobs and sex work. Like, I feel like you always start bottle service, then you kind of like go a little deeper, a little deeper, then you're a sugar baby, then it's this, then it's that, then why not? A guy wants to fly you to Miami, and then he wants to sleep with you, and then, and then, and then. So... But on another note, she's talking about how she got into drugs when she was doing all of this. This is very common. These are late nights and Coke is everywhere. And Coke will make you stay up really late. If you're really drunk, Coke will sober you up really fast. And so a lot of times when you're working these jobs, guys are buying you drink after drink and you'll learn to kind of like dump out drinks on the sly and shit like that. But if you partake in the drinks, you'll get drunk. And if you do a bump of Coke, you will immediately sober up. It works really well, but it also is awful and makes you feel like absolute fucking shit. I do not recommend it. You also don't even know what Coke is going to be cut with. I had many friends who got really scary sick. Nowadays, there's fentanyl in Coke, And people are dying from that shit. So it is really dangerous. She says she got into E, like ecstasy, and Molly, which is also a name for MDMA. And this stuff can really make you feel great. And 
if you think about it, when you're doing this stuff, which is like really out of integrity for a lot of girls, like it feels like shit. It doesn't feel good to like have to deal with slimy, gross people that are treating you like an object. So it's so understandable why people that are in sex work numb out with drugs and use drugs to stay up. Like it's hard to stay up that late. It's hard to put a good face on and pretend like you're happy when you're doing something like that and being treated like shit. So this is what happens. Um, let's continue listening. Um, shrooms is kind of more so my like, my thing, my medicine. I know some people like to call it, which I would too personally. You find them helpful? Very much so. I think I, like I'm very spiritual. So I feel like it answers questions that I feel like I really need answered sometimes. I feel like I see things um, what they're for at times. Mushrooms help you see things from a totally different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And from it just, sticks with you after you're off them? Yeah, honestly. Yes, personally it does. Some people may feel different, but honestly, most who've done it would probably say the same thing. Yeah, I've seen things from a different perspective. Like I had a trip where I really realized I had childhood trauma. And I don't know why it was that trip, I was listening to a Kendrick Lamar song and I just, I don't know, I realized I needed like to work on my childhood traumas and it still has stuck with me. And it kind of, I don't know, it was like a relief to know that that was one of the things kind of also hindering me, the things I went through as a child and a teenager, you know. So I definitely think that helps a lot. This is really interesting that she brings up shrooms and she says that shrooms or like magic mushrooms as they're called are helpful for her and that they've helped her see things from what she describes as a different perspective. And I've had similar experiences. I've had some very profoundly healing experiences using psilocybin mushrooms that were prescribed to me by a Native American shaman. He is like a member of a Native American church. So he's actually able to legally sell me some of these things. There are loopholes in the United States. And as I've said, I'm not recommending anybody go buy things that are illegal. I have no idea why mushrooms are illegal. It's really interesting because there's a lot of studies going on right now that um, people with trauma and other kind of mental health ailments are being treated with um, psychedelics to help them move through their trauma to each their own. Everybody is different. I'm not saying it would help everyone. Some people have a really bad trip on mushrooms and it will like freak them the fuck out. So I'm not saying it works for everyone. But for me, I have to say I had a very similar experience to her where I felt like it helped me completely see something from a different perspective psychedelics are all about the environment that you do them into for example the only time i've done psychedelics is when i've been in a really safe environment and i had what was called a trip sitter which is zaz basically but somebody who's in the house with you that will kind of be in a different room and let you kind of do your thing but they're there and you know that someone is safe that can come kind of like be with you if you need that they're sober and they're safe it's really important that you don't do some kind of psychedelic trip out in the wilderness by yourself and i think some people end up doing that stuff but highly do not recommend that 
But how she mentioned that she was just listening to music and she had this realization that she had childhood trauma and she needed to work on her trauma. That's beautiful. Anything that can help you gain that sense of introspection, like I'm all here for it as long as it's safe and you know where you're getting your stuff. (laughs) And I think that's fantastic that that was able to work for her. So let's continue listening. And you discovered at a certain age that you're struggling with the borderline personality disorder. Yeah, I noticed, honestly, I, my attention, my intentions, my um, emotions were intense when I was like younger. But, you know, I just thought I was a real over emotional child, you know, just sensitive, kind of just brushed it off. It really wasn't until like high school I've noticed it was extreme, like it was pretty bad. And, you know, unfortunately, growing up like in like with my parents, I didn't really get the help that I needed. It kind of got brushed off the shoulder Um, mentally. They weren't the best to me all the time, unfortunately. Still love them, still care about them, still see them. But uh, they weren't the best emotionally and um, mentally. So that also kind of made things worse and not better. And I finally decided to get like a professional opinion. And when I was 18, I went to my psychiatrist and yeah, she pretty much summed it up for me, which I kind of had a feeling. That's why I wanted to say something. But yeah, found out 2018. Um, I'm tr- taking Trintelix, but that's not really the best. I don't know. Medicine has not been my thing. It's like something telling me to not take it. Like, I don't know if it's my depression, if it's some, I, I don't know, like my subconscious. I, I, I don't know. But it's really hard for me to take medicine, like so hard. And a lot of people tell me, you know, oh, it'll help. You got to keep taking it. But I don't want to. I don't know why. You backed off from taking the medication? Yeah, I feel like I should be able to do like figure it out on my own. Like it kind of makes me feel not normal. Like I know that's weird to say, like it's medicine, like a lot of people take it, but it just doesn't make me feel normal. And I already don't feel normal. So I feel like medication kind of makes it real. Like it's real for me, but it really just kind of makes it more real for me, if that makes sense. Wow, beautiful how she's sharing here. It's just so vulnerable and open. She talks about, you know, how her parents weren't the best to her mentally and emotionally. More, more, uh, you know, her just kind of shrugging things off. And she says, but I still love them. And I think it's beautiful that she says that too, right? Because I really do think that we, a lot of us have to get to the point too where we overcome the part of like blaming our parents because most of our parents were doing the best they could with their resources they had and they were growing up likely in an environment where there were no resources and they were invalidated it's this generational trauma thing so she has a really mature perspective about that but she talks about finally deciding to get a professional opinion she went to a psychiatrist ditto same experience i had right and this person diagnosed her and gave her a prescription of trintelix So I've heard of Trintelix before, but let's read a little bit about it. It said, Vortioxine, 
sold under the brand name Trintelix and Brintelix, among others, is a medication used to treat major depressive disorder. Effectiveness is viewed as similar to that of other antidepressants. In the United Kingdom, it's only recommended in people who have not improved sufficiently on two other antidepressants. Common side effects include nausea, vomiting, constipation, and sexual dysfunction. Serious side effects may include suicide in those under the age of 25. Serotonin syndrome, bleeding, mania, a withdrawal syndrome may occur if the dose is rapidly decreased. During pregnancy and breastfeeding, it is not recommended. It is classified as a serotonin modulator and stimulator. How it works is not entirely clear, but it is believed to relate to increasing serotonin levels and possibly interacting with certain receptors for serotonin. It was approved for medical use in the United States in 2013. It was the 312th most commonly prescribed medication in the United States with more than 1 million prescriptions. So lovely little list of side effects there. There's also been a lot of research in the last couple of weeks really talking about this. It is a myth that people have chemical imbalances in their brain. It is not proven by science. A lot of the impact that psychiatric medications have are placebo-based and they're vastly overprescribed to people. But as I mentioned, I'm not a doctor, don't listen to me, and absolutely never, ever, ever go cold turkey off of any of your psychiatric medications because scary shit can happen. If you decide to not take things, you need to wean off your medications slowly under the supervision of a doctor. It's very important. But she talks about being put on Trintelix and she says, it's not really the best. She cracks me up because everything is like, well, it wasn't a big deal. It's not really that great. I wonder if in this entire interview, she's going to say something like, that was fucking horrible. Everything is very like, eh, eh, no big deal. Um, But she says something inside of her is telling her not to take it. Maybe it's her subconscious. She said, it's really hard for me to take medicine. A lot of people tell me it will help me. It'll help. You got to keep taking it, but I don't want to. And I don't know why. I feel like I should be able to figure it out on my own. And to that, I say, trust your fucking gut. And it has not been proven that medication can help with symptoms and traits of BPD. There has been no medication proven to help with those symptoms. A lot of it is working through your trauma, becoming more self-aware, putting space between your big reactions and emotions. And so she sounds very intuitive to me, like saying like, I need to figure this out on my own. And therapy is always amazing. Talk therapy. If you can access that, having a safe person that you can share your feelings with and work through your shit with, But medication has not been proven to be helpful for people who struggle with BPD symptoms. So let's go ahead and continue listening. So like anxiety, depression, anger, do you go through any of that? All three. Like, I don't even know which it's different days are worse. Um, Yeah, it just depends on the days. How would your boyfriend describe you? Um, I think he would describe me as, um, I don't know, I definitely have talked to him about these things before. I told him I feel like my mental health has been um, a problem. I feel like it slows him down or it holds him back. Um, he seems to disagree. He seems to, you know, feel like it's something he can be around. He seems to think that I'm not that 
person I have imaged in my head, I think I'm crazy sometimes. It makes the relationship exciting, I'm, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ew. I hate that. And sometimes Mark, the interviewer of this, to me, gives me just like light, stigmatizing, gross vibes. Like that, oh, it makes the, the relationship interesting. No, fuck off. That's awful. You know what I'm saying? And she laughs it off. But she talks about she feels like her mental health holds her boyfriend back and he disagrees and he thinks I'm not that person that I've made out in my mind. This sounds like a really lovely thing that this partner is saying to her. And then Mark cuts in and says, oh, I bet it's really exciting. Again, perpetuating this stupid fucking manic pixie dream girl thing. When in reality, she was just talking about how her partner loves her and wants her to see what he sees in her, which is a beautiful, amazing person. So I just had to pause that and just be like, ew, I hate that. Anyway, let's dive back in. Is it your instability that is the biggest issue? Yeah, I think it's really my instability. Um, like my flip, like I don't like how I can flip so switch so quickly and so aggressively and so intensely. And I really feel like it's a problem. Like I'll I don't know, I'll just be sitting there chilling, having a decent time, smoking my weed, trying to relax. And like I'll hear something on the TV that like triggers me, like a trigger word. Like I don't like, I don't know, something that triggers me. And I get like really in a weird mood. Like I just get like an attitude. I get groggy. Like if I feel like I didn't do enough that day or didn't go up and do like orders, delivery orders or try to make any money. I feel lazy. I feel ashamed. I, I I get upset. You know, I start screaming, trying to toss stuff around the house because my house isn't clean. And it's like a domino effect. And then it's just at its peak. And I it's so hard to calm down. And I. I don't know, it's just hard to calm down. I feel like sometimes, you know, he doesn't even know what to do. And it makes me feel really bad. Like when it's all said and done, when I kind of snap back into it, I feel horrible like I feel really horrible like it's terrible I hate feeling like that I feel like I just lost it and it's not a good feeling wow how many of us can relate to that right she is describing splitting you know she's like I don't like how I can flip and switch so quickly and aggressively and she noticed she mentions like I'll just be sitting here smoking my weed and Weed is a really messy thing to be doing when you are right in the beginning, early recovery phases of your BPD, and especially if you're doing it chronically to numb out. Weed can make you really paranoid, speaking from experience, and also if you have an addictive personality, it can make you reach for it really quickly, and you need to be able to self-soothe without substances. But she says that she'll just be sitting there smoking her weed and hear something on TV. And then she gets that. I've talked about this before. And she'll say, and all of a sudden, something will just like come over her. And I've talked about this as kind of like the BPD veil. You know, your partner will say one thing. You'll see something on TV. And all of a sudden, what she's describing, how she says, then I get an attitude. I'll start feeling lazy, ashamed, screaming and throwing things. This is when your inner critic pops up we've talked about this concept that pete walker talks just des describes as the inner critic in his book 
complex PTSD from surviving to thriving, the inner critic is this internalized inner critical parent. And quite often, that's the voice that you're hearing inside your head that's saying, you're not good enough. You should have fucking done more today. She clearly like does Deliveroo or Uber Eats or something because she's like, I didn't do enough deliveries that day. And she's like, the voice in her head is telling her, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And then the childlike side of her is like retaliating against that. And it's just this inner storm, right? And clearly your partner tries to calm her down and then we all know how that goes too. And then she describes that snapping back to reality and that deep, profound feeling of shame that comes with it after the smoke has cleared and the dust has settled after a big BPD episode, that feeling of shame that you feel. And just like, wow, look what I'm doing to the people around me, the people that love me. And it's also exhausting going through that. So hard relate and it's really, really tough. So let's get back into it. And has there been good points in your life where it hasn't been a problem or has it been steadily? Definitely. Um, I find it more so like when I'm, you know, doing something like going on a trip. I haven't really traveled much, but when I do little trips like to Chicago or to Ohio, I find myself more at peace, like being away, you know, from the state. I feel like being here kind of plays a big part too. Traveling, um, traveling. Yeah, traveling really, I feel like um, eases it. Um just going outside, just like having a good time, being like young, enjoying my youth, like doing things that I feel like you should do in life kind of make me feel better. And some so, days like if you're stimulated, it kind of yeah. fills whatever void you're mm-hmm. frustrated and angry. About. Absolutely. When I feel like when I'm doing something like and at home, you maybe get bored. Yeah, I think that's really it, too. I think I'm at home. I get bored. I don't know what to do. Like I'm having a really bad uh time in my life trying to find out what I want to do for my career and um you know I don't know what to do I don't know what to get into I don't know where to start and being at home kind of solidifies that because I feel like I kind of just sit at home all day and sleep and smoke and watch tv and cry and it's like no one wants to do that it's annoying it's frustrating and I find myself yeah when I go out is better. But lately I've been finding myself getting bored even going out. Like I'll be out and you know Detroit is so small. Like there's only so much to do and so much drama here. Someone's always shooting or ruining something or someone's fighting. So it's hard to even enjoy myself like now hanging out with my friends or you know who my boyfriend or whatever. And it's like even that's like a problem for me and I find myself wanting to go home early, not enjoying myself. And, um, yeah, sometimes it feels like it's getting worse. Like, I'll feel like, you know, some days I'm feeling better. I can do more things. Like, it's not affecting me. I had a good day. And then other days I feel like a rock. Like, I can't do anything. And, yeah, it's it's pretty, I don't know, it's lonely. It's hard to feel like, um, it's hard to get anybody to try to understand and, it's hard to relate. You know, people will say, yeah, you know, I have depression, anxiety. I feel it. But I genuinely just don't think like a lot of my close friends have that the intenseness of it like I do. You know, again, a really vulnerable share from her. She talks about how she feels well, she used to feel more at peace when she was distracted going out and stuff and that she gets really bored at home 
And I think a lot of us understand that like chronic feelings of boredom, that's when I would go out and get like impulsive tattoos or fuck with my hair, or go do sex with self-harm. Like we start needing to like fill that empty void, the big empty. And so we can really relate to that. And she says that she starts stressing out about what she wants to do with her life. And she sits at home and cries and cries. And we can understand that. And when we do that, we get into this like kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where we're just smoking weed all day laying in bed all day not taking care of our immediate needs or like my therapist bev used to say assessing our vulnerabilities like have you eaten a healthy snack have you gotten good sleep have you had enough water are you you know are you going on a walk in the morning these are things that you have to do because otherwise your mental health will start going downhill and if you are smoking weed and you're taking psychiatric medication and you're not getting sleep and 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 all these things it is inevitable that you are going to experience some serious psychological suffering what's the most uh extreme it's gotten for you um i'd say honestly when i so that's it for the sneak preview if you'd like to unlock the rest of this episode you will need to subscribe to my premium podcast feed and you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access i hope you've enjoyed that the rest of this episode it's like a full hour i dive deep into this interview and it is an incredible one but if you don't choose to subscribe to premium you can still support soft white underbelly and watch this full interview and binge all the other interviews on that channel if you would like and you can do that by searching soft white underbelly on youtube or you can click the link to this interview in the episode description i'm also going to be linking all those books that i mentioned in the episode so if you'd like to check those out do that too but until then i will be leaving you now i hope you have the most amazing week and i will talk to you next time Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.